together to 1 Samuel chapter 15 in the Old Testament. If you're going to use our copy of the Bible, which you'll find on the back of the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 201 of our copy, 1 Samuel chapter 15 in your copy. And, uh, you know, I want to start by asking you a question, and the question is this. What is the worst mistake you have ever made in your whole life? I mean, just the absolute, total, greatest disaster that you've ever done. Well, you know, my problem is when I began thinking about this this week, I had so many candidates for the answer that, that that's bad when you got, you know, 10 or more candidates for the worst mistake in your life. Like the time that I went and emptied my savings account and bought silver at $35 an ounce. That's one of them. Or the time that I moved my wife and family to three different houses in two years and completely used up all the equity we had built up in our first home. Or the time where I came out and it was winter and I had frost all over the windshield and I didn't feel like scraping it off. I was in too much of a hurry. So I just got in the car anyway and rolled down the window and I was driving up the road with my head out the window figuring as soon as the car warmed up I could clean the windshield. And I drove right into a parked car in the neighborhood. But it was a vintage collector car. And I totaled it, bent the frame and totaled this guy's collector car in the neighborhood. He came to see me and he said, how could you hit a parked car in a neighborhood? Not a good day. Well, here's another one of my top ten. When I first joined the staff of of Riverdale Baptist Church over in Largo, Maryland, I was the college career director. This was back in the late 70s. I was 27 years old with my first full-time ministry position. And I really wanted to impress Herb Fitzpatrick, who was the pastor there then. He's a a very dear friend of mine now. And uh, that I was, you know, going to do a good job. So I thought, we got to throw a a drop-dead great social right off the bat. So I convinced him to let us have it in his backyard, the pastor at his home. So we're going to invite everybody over and we decided we we're going to have a Hawaiian luau. This was good. So when we sat and then while we were doing the planning, one of the people on the planning committee said, said, I know this real neat group of little girls who get together and they do hula dancing. It's kind of like a little volunteer thing they do. Let's have them come and do hula dancing. And I thought that is a great idea. A bunch of little tiny girls up there doing hula dancing. Be awesome. So we're in the backyard of the pastor's house. There's just kids everywhere. The pastor's there. His wife's there, you know. And so the, the hula dancers show up. Except that these little girls had had a serious encounter with puberty, if you know what I'm trying to say here. I mean, these were not little girls. And they put on these grass skirts and with nothing on, uh, on under them, but it's just underwear, and they began to dance hula. And I swear, as these grass skirts moved, you could drive a lawn boy through, through some of the holes in these grass skirts. And I'm standing back there next to the pastor and his wife, and I'm looking around at all the girls' faces in the group who are there, and they are totally embarrassed. And then I'm trying to look around at the boys' faces, but I can't see their faces. They've all moved to the front. All I can see is the back of their heads. And I'm like, uh-oh. And the pastor turns to me and he goes, Lon, he said, I am holding you personally responsible for what happens here. And I was like, oh my goodness, how did I get in this? The only way I could figure out to diffuse this is I ran up front, got a grass skirt on myself, and I began to get up and hula dance in front of the girls. And the guys dispersed, which was good. Um, oh, it was awful. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about a guy today who made one of the worst mistakes he ever made in his life. The difference is, I kept my job. I didn't get fired. He did. 
And we're going to talk about it and talk about what lessons it has for our lives in the 20th century. Now, here in 1 Samuel 15, remember, the Israelites have asked for a king, and God has given them Saul as their king. Here in this chapter, God comes to King Saul and gives him a direct order that he wants him to obey. Let's look. Verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord uh, sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now, I have a message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, Saul. He says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid Israel as they came out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites. And totally destroy everything that belongs to them. To them, Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Wipe everything out. You say, Lon, this is horrible. I mean, how can a loving God order something like this? This is, this is ridiculous. Well, let me see if I can explain. We need to go back a little bit in the Old Testament. Keep a finger in 1 Samuel. We're coming back. But turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's page 143 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Deuteronomy 25. And to explain what's happening here, you need to go back and read this. Now look with me, Deuteronomy 25. Look at verse 17. God says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Now, do you understand what's happening here? When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they crossed through, you know, the Red Sea. They were going through Sinai and they were just a ragtag bunch. They were weary. They were worn out. They were disorganized. There would be certain people who were straggling towards the back. There were the elderly and there were the sick and there were the weak and there were the young who couldn't keep up with the big pack, the mass of people. And these Amalekites came along and they prayed on these weak and elderly and sick people. They raped the women, they killed them, they plundered their property. And God says this was a detestable thing to do, to pick on the weak people at the back of the train like this. And so God says, verse 19, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies in the land of Palestine, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek, the Amalekites, from under heaven. Do not forget. God pronounced judgment on the Amalekites for what they did, this detestable thing that they did. The only difference was, instead of having Moses execute that justice and that judgment, he waited 400 years later and said to Saul, Now, Saul, I pronounced judgment on these people. They deserved it, and I'm, carrying, I'm letting you carry it out. You understand what's going on here? God's just not arbitrarily saying, go wipe out a bunch of people. There's a lot more happening. This is the justice of God being fulfilled and expressed for what they did to Israel. Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel 15. As we go back, let me summarize now what happens next. Saul musters the army and he attacks the Amalekites just the way God ordered him to. And he totally destroys their army, just the way God orders him to. And he totally burns their city down, just the way God ordered him to. So far, so good. But now, we got a little problem. Verse 8. But Saul and the army spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs. He took Agag, king, the, the king of the Amalekites, alive. 
but he totally destroyed everything else. Now, why would he take the king alive? Well, he took the king alive because in those days, when you had a victory parade to prove that you had won a great battle, you took the king of the city that you had beaten and you paraded him around in this victory parade, kind of like a medal on your chest. And Saul wanted to do that. And he also kept the best of the livestock alive. Now, had God told him to preserve the king alive? No. Had God told him to keep the best of the livestock alive? No. God said, I want everybody, including the king and the livestock, wiped out. Saul didn't do it. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And he said, the Lord said, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And early the next morning, verse 12, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul. But he couldn't find him at first. Finally, when he found him, verse 13, Saul came up to him and said, The Lord bless you, Samuel. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He sees Samuel coming from a distance and he walks up to him and he says, Hey, Samuel, I did it, man. I did it. We did it, man. We beat him. I love you, man. I love you. And Samuel says, wait a minute, whoa, 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 so hold on a second. Verse 14. What then is this bleeding of sheep I hear? And what then is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Now, this is humor. The reason you don't get it is because it's Bible humor. See, you don't get Bible humor. But this is Bible humor. This is supposed to be funny. Because Samuel says to him, hey man, God told you to wipe out everything, didn't he? So if you did what God told you, how come I hear and how come I hear moo? If you went and did what God told you to do, there shouldn't be any baths or moos for me to hear. So I told you it was Bible humor. You wouldn't get it. See, but it is funny. Ah, forget it. All right. So let's go on. Verse 15. Watch, watch how sanctimoniously Saul answers him. He says to him, well, you know, the soldiers kept these animals alive from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and look why they did it and the cattle so that we could sacrifice, so that we could worship God with these animals. I mean, it's like saying, hey, God, I embezzled $10,000, but that's OK because I'm going to put 10 percent of it in the offering plate. So it's OK. It's okay. I'm going to worship with some of it. Oh, no. Stop, Samuel said. Verse 16. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night, Saul. Verse 17. He said that although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king, and he sent you on a mission, Saul. Saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, make war on them till you have wiped them out. Verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord? Verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul says. I went on the mission the Lord sent me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And I brought back Agag, their king, and the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle so that we could sacrifice them to God. He just doesn't get it, does he? He just doesn't get it. Samuel said, let me tell you something, Saul. Don't tell me about saving the sheep and the cattle to worship God with. Let me tell you something. Verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he delights in obeying the voice of God? No, Saul. To obey is better than to sacrifice. 
to obey is better than to worship God with these animals. You should have done exactly what God told you to do. Verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as being king. How serious was this in the sight of God? This was very serious. He said, look, Saul, here's the deal. I've got to be able to trust my king to do what I tell him. You didn't do what I tell you. You can't be king anymore. That's all there is to it. Verse 27, and as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. And Samuel turned to him and said, just the way you tore my robe, in the same way, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to someone better than you. And here's our friend David first appearing on the scene. This is who he's going to give the kingdom to. Verse 32, and then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Bring him here to me. And Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely I've escaped death. Front row, going to put me in the front row, he came in. And Samuel said, your sword has made other women childless, so now your mother's going to be childless. And Samuel, it says, literally in the Hebrew, hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord. At Gilgal. You get the sense of what he did here? He got a sword and he hacked this guy, body parts going everywhere. He hacked this guy into pieces right there. You say, I can't believe Samuel did that. This is a preacher person. I mean, this is like a pastor person. This is like the white collar guy picking up a sword and slashing this guy in all kinds of pieces. That's right. Because God wanted Saul to do it. Saul didn't do it. Samuel was a man who understood God wanted this done. And Samuel said, Saul, if you won't do it, I'll do it myself. And he did it. Then, verse 34, Samuel left, and Saul went home. Verse 35, and until the day Samuel died, he never went to see Saul again, even though he mourned for Saul. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leaves us with the really important question. And what's the really important question? So what? So what? Very good. Now... I, 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 what's your candidate? Have you ever thought about this? Do you have a candidate for the least favorite word in the English language? Now, in January, you know what I think the least favorite word in the English language is? Visa bill. How's that? In April, what's the least favorite word in the English language? Taxes, right. In summer, the least favorite word in the English language is humidity. In the fall, the least favorite word in the English language are the cowboys. At least that's how I see it. All right. Yeah, yeah. And in December, the least favorite word in the English language is Toys R Us. Nobody wants to get near that place. But I've got a candidate for the least favorite word in the English language that I think works no matter what month you're in. And here's my candidate, obedience. I think that's the least favorite word in the English language. Two-year-olds hate it. Elementary school kids hate it. Teenagers despise it. College students hate it. Boot camp soldiers hate that word. Employees hate that word. And drivers on the beltway obviously seem to hate that word. Nobody likes the word obedience. And yet obedience is a very special and meaningful word for Almighty God. That's what this passage is all about. It's all about obedience. What does it mean? What does obedience mean? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary. Here's what it means. It means to follow the orders... And carry out the instructions of someone who is in authority over you to do what you are told. King Saul's problem is he didn't seem to understand the meaning of the word obedience. He thought 
that good intentions qualify as obedience. They don't. He thought that partial compliance qualifies as obedience. It doesn't. He thought that if he had some kind of spiritual sounding reason why he disobeyed, God would say, well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You really did obey. God says, no, you didn't. Saul didn't seem to understand what obedience really meant. As you know, I have an older son who's a second year, almost a third year student out at the U.S. Naval Academy. And I have to say one thing. The military has taught my son what obedience means. I thought he knew before he left home, but brother, let me tell you something. He really understands now. And if you've ever been in the military, you ever go in the military, you may not understand what obedience means before you go in. But I promise you, brother, you will know by the time you get out. Because you see, military people understand this word very well. They understand that half obedience is no obedience. They understand you don't half charge a hill. You don't half launch a missile. You don't half launch a torpedo. They understand that, that half obedience is disobedience. And this is what happened with Saul. Saul gave God half obedience. He thought he had done the job. But God says, I'm sorry, Saul. Half obedience is not obedience. It's disobedience. How important is obedience to God? Well, gee, look right here. Verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Let's put it in 20th century language. Does the Lord delight as much in going to church and singing in the choir and singing out of the hymn book and putting money in the offering plate and teaching in the Sunday school? Does the Lord delight as much in reading the Bible and calligraphy and Bible verses and putting them on the wall of your house and memorizing the Bible? Does the Lord delight in any of those things as much as He does in obeying the voice of God? To obey is better than to worship. How important is this to God? Man, it's important enough he took Saul's kingship away. And the whole Bible is full of this message about how important obedience is to God. Listen to some of these verses. James chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to God's word and so deceive yourselves. Rather, do what it says. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father, that is the person who is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus said, John 13, 17, now that you know these things, happy are you if you sing about them? Happy are you if you paint them up on your wall? Happy are you if you memorize them on three by five cards? No, he said, happy are you if you do them and I love Matthew chapter 7. You know the wise man and the foolish man? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Why are you all looking at me like I'm crazy? You know the song? You know the song? I thought for years the difference between the wise man and the foolish man was that one was a Christian and one wasn't. That's not at all the difference between these two people. Listen, the Bible says, all who hear my word, Jesus said, and do, do it, do what I tell them, they're like the wise man. And everyone who hears my word and doesn't do it, that person's like the foolish man. Can you be a Christian and be a foolish person building your house on the sand? Sure you can. The issue here is not whether you're a Christian or not. The issue is whether or not you hear the words of God and you do them. Now, as Christians in, in the modern age, I think that this has some incredible implications for our lives. Jesus said, if you love me, John 14, 15, you will obey what I told you to do. 
And, and our modern day Christianity so emphasizes God's love and God's mercy and God's understanding and God's forgiveness, all of which is true of God. That I'm afraid sometimes we often forget something else about God, and that is God wants Obedience. Yes, God is a God of love. And yes, God is a God of understanding and mercy. But friends, knowing this about God is meant to motivate us to keep trying harder to obey God, knowing that if we do fall short, God will forgive us and God will be okay with that. These things about God, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His understanding, were never meant to be excuses so we didn't have to obey God. And that's how we use them. Many times I hear Christians say, well, you know, God is a God of mercy. And they're using this as an excuse to go do what God says don't do. Well, God is a God will understand. And they use this as an excuse to go disobey God. The fact that God will understand and God is a God of mercy was never intended to be an excuse so that we could go disobey God. A.W. Tozer, the great Christian writer, wrote and said this. He said, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on lately and how little revival has resulted? Considering the volume of prayer that is ascending these days, rivers of revival should be flowing. That no such results are in evidence should not discourage us. Rather, it should stir us to find out why our prayers are not being answered. Now, listen to what he said. He said, I believe that our problem." is that as Christians, we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. You can pray for a revival all you want, but if we've got Christians that are disobeying God, it ain't going to happen. And if we've got Christians who are obeying God, revival will take care of itself. You don't need to pray for it. What have I learned about obeying God in my 26 years of being a Christian? I've learned four things. Can I give them to you? I'm not going to develop them, but write them down. Here's what the four things I've learned about obeying God. Number one, obeying God always presses us out of our comfort zone. Number two, obeying God always involves a certain amount of risk. Number three, it is always easier not to obey God. And number four, you will always be glad... When you do, let me give them to you again. Obeying God, number one, will always press you and me out of our comfort zone. Number two, it will always involve some risk. Number three, it is always easier not to. I promise you that. You can find 50 excuses why you shouldn't do it. But number four and finally, you obey God. You will never, ever regret that you did it. Now, where are some areas that God wants us to obey Him? I want you to turn into the New Testament to Acts chapter 26 for our last passage this morning. Acts chapter 26. It's page 793. If you're using our copy of the Bible, page 793. And here we have Paul in Acts chapter 26 speaking to King Agrippa. And he's telling King Agrippa that when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road, he obeyed what Jesus asked him to do, and he went and preached, just like Jesus asked him to do. Acts chapter 26, look at verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, Paul says, I was not disobedient to the vision that came to me from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem... And then in all Judea and then to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God. Now stop right there. If you're here today 
and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what kind of obedience does God want from you? Right here. It says it. God wants you to repent and turn to God. To repent means to change your mind. To change your mind about yourself and your life and your values and your relationship with God and, and, and the whole purpose of your life. It means to change your mind about the way you're living your life and to make a U-turn in your life and turn back to God and accept Christ as your personal Savior. Will that press you out of your comfort zone? Yes. Will that involve some risk? Yes. Is it easier not to do it? You bet. Will you be glad you did it? Oh, my friend. Will you be glad you did it? Jesus Christ will not only forgive your sin and give you eternal life, He'll invade your life. He'll start changing you from the inside out. He'll connect you with the living God. He'll make you part of the family of God. He'll give you a reason and a purpose and a meaning for life this world can't give. He will radically transform your life into something worth waking up to doing every day. It, will it be worth it? You bet it will. And, and the neat thing about God is that after you've said no to God 50,000 times, God's the kind of God you can still say yes to. I don't care how many times you've told God no, it doesn't matter. If you want to turn to God, you can do it and God's happy to have you. What kind of obedience does God want from you if you don't know Christ? He wants you to repent and turn to Christ. But it doesn't stop there. What if you're a Christian? Well, look, let's finish the verse. I preach that they should repent and turn to God, watch, and then demonstrate, prove their faith and their repentance by the way they live, by their deeds. If we're Christians, you know what God wants from us? He wants a, a kind of obedience that displays to the world that we are marching to the beat of a different drummer, that we are a different group of people, and that Jesus Christ has changed our life, and that we now are His people living His worldview. And how do you demonstrate that to an onlooking world? You do it by obeying what God tells you to obey and living the way He tells you to live. A few years ago, I got a personal property tax bill from the state of Virginia, and they undercharged me by hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It was a mistake. And I went, yes, this is fabulous. Look what God did for me. I, I was so excited. Look, God, look how much money God saved me. This is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you, God. I need the money. Thank you, God. And I started telling my friends because I was so excited about it. And they, they, they said, Lon, you can't keep that money. There was, it's a mistake. You, you have a moral obligation to go tell the state of Virginia they made a mistake. And I said, well, you, don't, you don't read that in here. Nothing about the state of Virginia in the Bible. You know, though God doesn't say that. God did this for me. God, did, God sent me. This. God, this was God, this was God thing. The God thing God did. And they went, no, no, no. And I went, really? And they went, no, you got, Lon, you can't do that. You got to go tell these people they made a mistake. I was like, oh, shoot. So I went in right down here on Balls Hill Road to the tax office. And I walked up to the lady, my personal property tax bill, and I said, ma'am, I'm here to tell you, you made a mistake in my personal property tax. She said, okay, well, if we did, we'll send you a refund check. I said, no, no, no. You made a mistake in my favor. I owe you money. And she said, is this a gag? And I said, no, 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 this is not a gag. I'm here to tell you I owe you money. You undercharged me for my personal property tax. And she said, Am I on candid camera? And I said, no, no, you're not on candid camera. I'm not Alan Funk. I don't even look like him. No, no, you undercharge me and I owe the state of Virginia money. And she checked it out and she said, you're right. They had undercharged me by like $800. And so I paid her. And she said, I got to ask you this. She said, why, why, why did you come in here and do this? 
And I felt like saying, not because I want to. This is not what I wanted to do. But I said, well, you really want to know the answer? And she said, yeah. I said, the answer is that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. And I need to live life His way. I would have loved to keep the money, but that's not right. And I have to do what's right because I've got a God watching what I do. And she's like, oh. Oh, well, that's very good. (laughs) Sorry I asked. Yeah. So, but hey, I went kicking and screaming, friends. But I'm glad I did it. And, And you know what? There are things in your life that you may go kicking and screaming. But if you obey God, you will always be glad you did it. What are some areas where God may want you as a Christian to demonstrate to this world by obeying God that you're marching to the beat of a different drummer? I'm going to give you a list. Your wife didn't call me. Your best friend didn't call me. Your roommate didn't say a thing. If I step on your toes, it's only because they're in the wrong place. Okay? Here we go. Number one. You, you might want to, you, God may be calling you to go seek somebody's forgiveness, to humble yourself, and you don't want to do that. You're saying, why should I do that? They did it first. I'm not doing that. Why should I? Well, why should you? Matthew chapter 5. If you come to the altar to worship and you know your brother's got something against you, leave your gift and go get it straight with your brother first. It's an act of obedience, folks. Maybe number two, God wants you to go make restitution for something you did that you can go back and you need to pay back. And you're saying, Lon, are you kidding? It's been too long. It would be embarrassing. It's going to cost me too much money. Let me tell you something. No piece of restitution will cost you as much as disobedience to God's going to cost you. Go get it right. It's a cheap price to have the blessing of God back. Maybe God's been asking you to speak to somebody about their relationship with Christ and you don't want to do it. You don't want to risk your relationship. You don't want to step out and embarrass yourself. Hey, if God's asking you to do it, you're going to obey him or aren't you? Maybe God's been telling you to stop dating some person. You know, there are people we should be dating as Christians and there are people we should not be dating as Christians. Missionary dating was never part of the plan of God. Missionary dating is like putting an anchor around your ankle and leaping in the Potomac and seeing if you can swim. It doesn't work. It was never God's plan. There are some people, Christians have no business dating, and many of us know we're dating people we have no business dating, so what are you going to do about it? Maybe you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiancé, and you know God wants you to stop, so what are you going to do about it? Folks... Listen, God made relationships and God knows how relationships work. And God says premarital sex and relationships do not work. And you ought to sit in my office some Tuesday and just hear the carnage and the baggage and the damage that comes in relationships where people don't listen to what God tells them. So if God's asking you to knock it off with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, what are you going to do about it? Maybe there's a secret pornography habit in your life. And God's been saying, you need to get some help with this, and you need to deal with this. And you're saying, man, it's embarrassing. I don't want to go tell anybody that. Well, if God's asking you to do it, what are you going to do? We can help you. But you've got to be willing to obey God and come let us help you. Maybe God's been asking you to get into a small group and get into a community so you're not the lone ranger Christian out there and become accountable to some people. We've got hundreds of small groups here. We can get you in a small group, but you have to be willing to obey God first and let us know you want to be in one. Men, how about spending more time with your families, huh? You say, well, I can't. I got my career. I really need to put my career out there or, you know, whatever. My boss doesn't feel kindly about family, you know, centered men. Hey, let me tell you something. You're not trying to please your boss. You're trying to please your God. And I have learned when you do what God tells you to do, God takes care of our careers. You put your family first the way God's asking you to. Your children and your wife first, men. And you be a man of God in your home. God will take care of your career. Maybe God's asking you to do something in Christian service. 
work in our children's ministry. And you're going, go down there with a bunch of sniveling little two years old. There's probably viruses down there that the CDC hadn't even heard of. You know, I'm going to catch one of them things. Hey, let me tell you something. If God's asking you to serve, do it from your heart. You'll be so glad you did. Obey God. Or maybe it's quiet time. We took a survey a few years ago in our adult Sunday school and found that less than one-third of the adults coming here have a regular quiet time. I know God's speaking to you if you're a Christian about quiet time because He speaks to every Christian about a time to be with God, alone with the Bible, alone in prayer. He said, but Lon, I can't. i got this to do, and I'm so busy, and in the morning it's this, and I'm here, and I... Hey, hey, hey. You sound like Saul. If God's asking you to do it, don't give us excuses. What are you going to do? You say, well, okay, Lon, okay, Lon. So what do I have to be as a Christian? I've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect to be a Christian. You can't ever do anything right. You've got to obey me. Perfect. Is this the deal? No. No, no, no. God's not looking for perfection, friends. God is looking for people who have a zeal and a passion to obey God. And are you going to get it right all the time? No. That's why God's also a God of love and forgiveness and understanding and mercy. But He wants people with a passion to obey Him. You say, finally, well, Lon, what if I've blown it? What if I'm blowing it right now? Hey, remember what we said about God being a God of the U-turn? That works for Christians, too. God is the God of the fresh start. And if you're a Christian and you've said to God, hey, I'm not doing that, and now you want to change your mind, God's happy to have you change your mind. You can have a fresh start right now. And if you've been saying no to God about some area of your life, I urge you, remember... God's not interested about coming to church, singing hymns, putting money in the offering plate as much as he's interested in just straightforward obedience. That's what he wants from you and me above everything else. And that's what I hope you'll give him. Let's pray. If you're here today uh, and with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, God has really spoken to you and you're prepared to say, Lon, I mean it. I'm going to obey God in this area of my life. I'm going to make that fresh start today. Then I really do want to pray with you. Hey, I've got one of those I've got to do. I've got to go make a phone call this week. And I need the courage to do that. And I want to pray that God would give you the courage to do that. And I will. I'd love to. If with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, you'll just raise your hand right now and say, Lon, I mean it. There's something I've got to do. And I'm going to obey God. Thanks. Anybody else? God bless you. Lord, thanks for these folks who raised their hand and for maybe others who didn't raise their hand but have made decisions today that they're going to obey you in some area of their life. And I want to pray that you would give us the courage that we need because it will take courage to step out of our comfort zone and take the risk of doing what we really don't want to do and don't feel like doing. It's easier not to do. So give us the courage we need, God. To obey you. And thank you that every time we do, and as we obey you this week, we will always be glad we did. Because you will reward our lives. Change the way we think. Change the way we see life. And the way we live our lives. Because we were here and encountered your word today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.